Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. As we stand, let's pray together. And our Heavenly Father, we do pray what we've just been praying in song. That we might come as those who are blind and hungry and receive light and food from your word. That we might come as those who are humble and taste and see and live. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, do sit down as you're sitting down. If you could be turning back in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we're going to begin at on page uh, 969, uh, with the passage beginning at, at uh, verse 33. Also among the different pieces of paper you were given on the way in, there's a, there's a handout, so you please do use that to follow along if you would like. Now, I wonder if you've ever come across the, the poem called Footsteps, or sometimes it's called uh, Footsteps in the Sand. It pictures the ups and downs of life, like, like walking along a beach with the Lord Jesus. And it's uh, often printed uh, with some sort of glossy photograph, a sort of holiday brochure photograph of a beach at sunset, uh, with that in the background. And I suppose if we're being charitable, it's quite a, it's quite a moving poem in its own way. Uh, the person who's walking with Jesus asks why at the most difficult times in her life it seems that she was left alone because there, there seemed to be only one set of footsteps in the sand at that time. And uh, the Lord replies, uh, that's when I was carrying you. Now, for those of us who think that, that picture, moving as it is, uh, needs a little spicing up, uh, here's what I suggest we do. Uh, Let's now suppose that this beach doesn't look at all idyllic. It looks, in fact, like Omaha Beach in June 1944 from the film Saving Private Ryan. In other words, it's a devastated war scene. Now already it's starting to look a little bit more like my life. And in front of us is a minefield. Uh, The minefield represents the kinds of things that we're going to face in in the coming week. And there's one sign up there that says danger, anger, lust, faithlessness. Those were the things we were thinking about last week. But now there's another sign. It says warning, distrust, vengeance, and hatred. And as we start to wonder how on earth we're going to get past those, well, the Lord Jesus sits down beside us in the sand and begins to teach us. And as we listen to Jesus' teaching over these weeks, I want to keep reminding you of two things especially. First, I'm going to say this every week, that the main thing that Jesus is doing here is preparing us for mission. This is teaching which only really makes sense, it can only kick into action in the event that's right at the other end of Matthew's Gospel, the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. In other words, this is, this is teaching for people who have already been served by Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They've already been saved. They've already been drawn into God's family uh, with their identity tied up in him. And this is very much about equipping us to fulfill our new purpose in life. 
And part of that purpose, as we had in our reading earlier, is chapter 5, verse 16. It is to shine. It is to shine through our behavior, to be lights in the world, to the praise of our Father in heaven. And the second thing to keep remembering, week by week, it's only what Jesus teaches on this that's going to be deep enough for that very special task. As we began to see last week, uh, that what the disciples have been hearing from other sources really isn't up to it. It's not adequate for the task. It's utterly inadequate. So we listen to Jesus. And this week we listen to his practical instruction on how to shine brightly to the praise of our Father in a world poisoned by distrust, by vengeful retaliation, and by hatred. Uh, we shall find, I think, that uh, none of these areas are easy. In fact, they're very difficult. But each one of them is about seizing real opportunities in our weakness and humility uh, to bring praise to our Father in heaven. And I hope we're also going to see that this is far from being dry, formal teaching on these things. I was very struck by this quotation there, which I put on the handout. This is from one of the commentators on on Matthew's Gospel. He says, uh, what is being added over and above what was being taught from the law at the time is something altogether different. A new attitude, a new spirit, a new vision. Uh, The text of the Sermon on the Mount functions much more like a story than a legal code. Its primary character is to instill principles and qualities through a vivid inspiration of the moral imagination. A vivid inspiration of the moral imagination. So then, prepare to have your moral imagination inspired tonight. First of all, inspired to shine brightly in a world poisoned by distrust. Shining brightly in a world poisoned by distrust. This is in verses 33 through to 37. Now, as we began to see last week, notice again here that there's a a pattern here. There's a movement in what Jesus says from from some incomplete or inadequate teaching uh, to his teaching, to a complete teaching, and then very often to a call to a practical action, action, and we'll see that in this little section. So first of all, the the, the incomplete and inadequate teachings is verse 33. Again, Jesus says, you have heard, this is from uh, their teachers of the law, But it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you have made to the Lord. In other words, these disciples will have heard teaching from the law, uh, Leviticus 19 and and, and elsewhere, that if you make an oath to God, if you swear to God, then you should keep that oath. It sounds fair enough, doesn't it? But I tell you, says Jesus, verse 34, do not make an oath at all. Now, why does he say that? What is so wrong with making oaths? Well, I think we can see the answer to that in some of the verses which follow. It does seem that at the time, the whole business of making oaths had got completely out of hand. People were getting around that commandment to keep their oaths uh, by making oaths based on all sorts of other things. Uh, By swearing by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or even, you can see there, by their own heads. 
In chapter 23, Jesus adds more examples, people swearing by the temple, by the temple gold, by the altar, by even by their gifts on the altar. And otherwise, in the culture at the time, people were doing everything they could to avoid making a binding oath to the Lord. They were hedging their commitments and promises. They were making them more or less strong and, or binding. So we might imagine that a typical first century Galilean business deal going something like this. So, says Andrew, a builder in the prosperous local town of uh, Sycophilus, to Alpheus, a supplier to the building trade. So the wood will arrive in 10 days. Certainly, says Alpheus. Well, 12 days, perhaps. Will you swear it on oath? An oath? Uh, certainly all our deeds and deals are sealed with an oath and backed up by a five-month guarantee. Will you swear by Jerusalem? Uh, well, not Jerusalem, but I might swear by my, uh, by my sandal. Your sandal? Who swears by their sandal? Will you swear by the temple? Not the temple. I might swear by my, by my head. Will you swear by the gold of the temple? Yes, okay, by the gold of the temple. Ha! says Andrew. Your oath is binding. Bother! says Alpheus. He vows to himself to sign up for a correspondence course on basic oath making. (laughs) So, what they're doing is they're they're trying to get around this commandment, they're trying to work their way around it gradually. But Jesus says, You can't do that. That is deception. That comes from the evil one, from the deceiver. Anything you swear by belongs to God. All oaths in his world, he will hold you to. And Jesus teaches his own disciples to stand out as different in that culture. Let your yes carry the weight of an oath to the Lord without any formality. No messing around. No trying to avoid it. Now, we might think that because we don't do all this kind of elaborate oath-making stuff, that this teaching doesn't apply to us. But a moment's thought will show us that we, we too, are constantly trying to wriggle out of our promises and commitments. I suppose it began in the school playground when we crossed our fingers when we were making a promise. Uh, Or even today, suppose you promise your friends... uh, that you're going out to some event, but then text them at the very last minute to to say that you can't come. And Actually, you were never very serious in the first place about going. You were just trying to look friendly, and you're hoping that that last-minute text makes it all right. Or suppose somebody phones me and asks me where I've done the thing that I said I would, and I reply, I'm doing it right now, or I'm just about to get round to doing it. Those, of course, are actually lies. And too often I find myself saying yes, uh, when actually I mean maybe, or even no. In other words, our economy with the truth should deeply convict and humble us. The stupidity, really, of our efforts to avoid keeping our commitments should humble us. These things should take us to our knees. And, of course, take us in the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, back to the Beatitudes, to those promises at the beginning of the sermon. Especially, I think, chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those 
who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to do the things which will bring others to praise their Father in heaven. Because wouldn't it be great to stand out as clear and trustworthy in what we say? To be the kind of person who's not afraid to say no when it's the right thing to do, but whose yes stands as a clear commitment. Would that make any difference? Yes, it would. Even in small ways. I think about the millions and millions of pounds each year in this country wasted on small print and lawyers and litigation because people are, too, are so lacking in integrity that they won't do what they're promised or tell the truth. When I was working in London, one of the Christian businessmen there was uh, rightly worried that he wasn't standing out as, a, as different as he would like in the workplace. But then he was surprised and encouraged when he was told by one of the admin staff that he was the only person, the only person on the team who ever filed an honest expenses claim. These things are noticed. Let's move on to something even more stretching. Shining brightly in a world poisoned by vengeful retaliation. Shining brightly in a world poisoned by vengeful retaliation. This is in verses 38 through to 42. And it's exactly the same pattern that we saw before. Uh, First, Jesus tells us about the kind of teaching from the law that's not enough for us to shine brightly in the world. You have heard, he says, from your teachers of the law, that it was said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now, that's quite right. That's a quote from Exodus uh, chapter 21, where the principle of eye for eye or, and tooth for tooth was set out for a very specific purpose. It was for the administrators of the law to limit punishment in a judicial setting. It was all about um, retribution and punishment not getting out of hand. It was all about making the punishment for a crime proportional to the crime. And that's a very godly and fair principle of justice that we have in our legal system too. And we have Exodus chapter 21 to thank for it. However, it seems that the teachers of the law in Jesus' day were seriously misapplying that principle. It seems that they were using that principle to justify a vengeful retaliation at a personal level. Now, there may well have been at the time, especially with all these Romans around them, situations of injustice which the law wasn't dealing with. There may have been much injustice. So the teachers of the law are using that eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth principle to suggest that in those cases of injustice, it was okay to take justice into your own hands, meeting insult with insult, hurts with hurts, and violence with violence. But I tell you, says Jesus, no, that is not okay. Verse 43, do not resist an evil person like that. Now, I don't want in any way to water down what Jesus says here, but we do need to be careful to make sure that we understand what he's saying. And I think in the context, we can see that what he's saying is this, do not resist an evil person in the way that you have been taught to resist, eye for eye, Tooth for tooth. That is, Jesus wants his disciples to respond to injustice differently, not with this kind of vengeful retaliation like some sort of one-person justice machine, but rather trusting 
in the coming justice of God. And what I think we'll see as we look at the examples Jesus gives here is that responding differently will actually expose evil in a way that retaliation never could. Now, as we go through this, it's worth remembering that Jesus was speaking into a culture that was perhaps more concerned than we are with uh, things like shame and honour. Nevertheless, I still think that we can make sense of this. And the general principle in these examples seems to be this. That by embracing the shame that the the evildoer is trying to bring upon us, we can actually turn that shame back on them. We can humiliate them and bring honour to God as we trust in him. Now, to see how this works in the four examples that Jesus gives here, imagine for a moment that you are, in fact, that evil person of verse 39. Imagine for a moment that you are a Mediterranean thug. You're a Greco-Roman heavy. Now, some of us will find that more or less easier than others. If you're a fan of spaghetti westerns, you'll know exactly the kind of character I mean. Anyway, as well as being a thug, you will also hate Christians, and there's nothing you like more than humiliating them publicly. Your first opportunity comes as you and your mates surround a, a Christian on the street, smirking, and you're smirking and mocking, you're, perhaps some of you are spitting, and you de- uh, deliver and administer the classic maximum insult in the ancient world. It's a backhanded slap to the right cheek. But to your great surprise, the Christian is unfazed by that. There are no bitter tears. There's no harsh response. In fact, there's no retaliation at all. Indeed, this Christian seems to be unprovocable and proves it by offering you the other cheek. Suddenly, everything has changed. The game has changed. The initiative has gone from you. Your power to humiliate has been taken away from you. And everyone's now looking at the Christian wondering, how are they able to do that? Next day, you try to get your own back. Uh, There's a Christian, perhaps in financial trouble. Perhaps they owe you some money, or at least you say they do. So you seek to humiliate them by demanding their tunic, that is, their undergarment, no less, as a payment or a pledge. But again, this Christian turns the tables on you, takes the initiative away from you by offering his cloak or outer garment as well. And as the Christian makes it look like that you are stripping him naked in your greed, if anyone's humiliated, it's you. Well, suppose now that you're a Roman thug, a military thug this time hoping to squeeze as much out of the locals as you can and have a bit of fun along the way. So with plenty of smirking and banter all around, you forcibly compel a random local to carry your pack for a Roman mile. But to everyone's great surprise, this crazy local doesn't stop after a mile, but carries on. Nobody's ever seen anything like it before. Suddenly the smirking stops. What's going on here? A Christian, you say? What's a Christian? And everywhere it seems that the thugs and loan sharks and oppressors are being shown up by these crazy Christians. Because instead of doing the normal thing, which is to pounce on the vulnerable like hungry dogs, look, they're 
They're giving freely, verse 42. These are people giving normality a bad name. So let's be clear about what's going on here. Jesus is not telling us to stop all kinds of resistance. This is about stopping a very particular kind of resistance, about stopping vengeful resistance and replacing it with a radical new kind of resistance that exposes evil for what it is. So it's certainly not about condoning injustice in any way. That should be perfectly clear. This also doesn't speak against protecting or defending ourselves against physical harm. The slap in verse 39, well, it might sting a bit, but it is just an insult. Jesus isn't describing a, a mugging or a physical assault. And this certainly doesn't speak against protecting others from physical harm. Nevertheless, it remains deeply challenging teaching, doesn't it? And you may have been wondering, as I described uh, how it's supposed to work, whether you'll ever be able to respond in the way that Jesus suggests here. I certainly wonder that about myself. You know, I I just, just have too much residual pride to be unprovocable in that kind of way. What do I need to do? What do we all need to do? You guessed it. It's to go back to the Beatitudes. Back, especially, I think, to chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who lay down their rights to fight back with a deep humility. Lay down their arms, recognizing their helplessness before God. Because it's only as we do that and do that again and again that that our residual pride can finally be squeezed out of us. Like squeezing poison out of a snake bite. And it's only then that we can begin to hunger and thirst, not for our own honor, but for the honor of the one who made us and saves us. It's only then that we can begin to show not vengeance, but mercy, not violence, but peace. It's only then that resting securely on the approval of our Father, we can begin to act act out, chapter 5, verses 10 through to 12, facing persecution, facing insult, facing slander, and facing it all for Jesus' sake. But let's face it, there are going to be many opportunities, maybe more today than there have ever been, and increasingly so. We're probably, I would guess though, avoiding them at the moment. Because we don't want to face this kind of mockery and exploitation. So we do lie low. But if only we were to to open up as Christians, you could be sure that the attempts to mock and shame and exploit us would come thick and fast, and they would come at school, they would come at work, and they would come with our neighbors. But just think it through. Let this inspire your moral imagination. How wonderful it would be to make those attempts to, to, to humiliate us fall flat. How wonderful to provoke people to ask, what, what is it gives, that gives these people such little regard for their own honor? What gives them such security? It's crazy. What gives them such confidence that they don't need to exact justice, that they can depend upon justice from somewhere else? What is going on here? Wouldn't it be good to provoke those kinds of questions? So says Jesus. 
Don't give back hurt for hurt, but give freely, as in verse 42 here. Give freely, not just returning hurt for hurt, but giving freely. And that's that deeper principle of giving freely that he expands on in the last section that we're going to look at tonight. Shining brightly in a world poisoned by hatred. Shining brightly in a world poisoned by hatred. This is in verses 43 through to 48. One last time, Jesus tells us about the kind of teaching from the law that is woefully inadequate to shine brightly in the world. You have heard from your teachers of the law, he says, that it was said, love your, enemy and hate, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you probably know already that the, that the second half of that quote, uh, hate your enemy, is, is a false addition. Uh, The text in the law, in Leviticus 19, for example, simply says, love your neighbor as yourselves. Nothing about hatred there. Absolutely nothing about hatred, much the opposite, in fact. And any attempt to infer hate for your enemy from elsewhere in the scriptures is likewise deeply flawed. That may well be what you have been taught, says Jesus, but I tell you, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your neighbors, including those neighbors who are enemies. And to back up his teaching, Jesus puts before us two examples, a positive example and a negative example. The positive example of the father and the counterexample of the tax collectors and pagans. Now, the example of the father you can see there in verse 45. The father is complete and impartial in his love to friend and foe. The blessings of sun and rain falling on good and bad alike. The counterexample of the tax collectors and pagans is there in verses 46 and 47. The tax collectors were, I guess, something like the, the Capones or Corleones or Sopranos of the day. And no doubt uh, they were likewise in their own way, in their own circles, sociable people. They would have done one another favors, shown each other respect, helped one another's children. But it would have been a very, very fragile friendliness. Uh, Put a foot wrong with people like that and you might well lose it. And other body parts too. Uh, likewise with the, with the pagans or, or the Gentiles, there was a love or, or friendship as a, of a sort in the, in, the, in the wider world. You know, people had dinner together, they had dinner parties, they chatted in the marketplace, they were friendly to one another, they gave one another gifts. But it was all conditional. Uh, cross someone, upset someone, slight someone, and it was all over. And nothing has changed, of course. That is pretty much how our society works too. So the example of the father or the counterexample of the tax collectors and Gentiles, which should it be? Well, says Jesus, you want to be sons of your father? Be like your father. Uh, So don't misread uh, verse 48 here. To be perfect here just means being complete and impartial in our love, just like our father. Be like your father, says Jesus. Now, I think we can see again that this is good. We can see that this is good teaching. But again, we might despair at putting this into practice. 
the Pakistani Christian who has had a, her whole family slaughtered by a mob. How, how can she do this? Uh, the Nigerian Christian forced onto the run, his land stolen from him, his church building burnt to the ground. How can this teaching be done? And we look at ourselves. Which example from these verses do we fit? Uh, we see in the tax collectors and Gentiles that there's a, there's a phony kind of love. Uh, some might dress that up as um, something that some people would call enlightened self-interest, but we can see it. We can see through that, can't we? We can see that it's really no more than a, a, a calculating, sophisticated selfishness. It's a conditional love. And I want us to ask ourselves as a, as a church family, does, does our love fall into that category, that kind of phony category? Do you tend to be more friendly to those you easily like and, and who are friendly in return? Because I know that that question convicts me and convicts me deeply. So it's back to the Beatitudes again. Back especially, I think, to chapter 5, verses 7 and 9. Blessed are the merciful, for they are the ones living under mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, sons of their Father. It's only with those promises in place that we can start to go about actually doing this. Back in 1977, there was a Ugandan Anglican bishop called Festo Kivenje, and he was on the run from the, the brutal and quite wicked dictator Idi Amin. Other Christian leaders in Uganda at the time had been captured and brutally killed. And while he was on the run, Festo wrote about Idi Amin. And the title of the book, I Love Idi Amin. Festo understood the Sermon on the Mount. It's interesting, God also blessed him with a really quite remarkable success as an evangelist internationally. And I suspect those two things, his understanding of the Sermon on the Mount on the one hand, and his success in evangelism, may well have been strongly connected. But there's one example who trumps all the others, of course. His yes was always yes. Always. His no was always no, always. When he was attacked by wicked men and unjustly arrested, he did not retaliate with vengeance, but instead entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Even when he was slapped, hit, spat upon, compelled to take and carry a cross. Even when his clothes were shamelessly stripped from him and squabbled over by greedy guards, he did not retaliate, but he endured it, endured it for the joy set before him. And instead of all those things, he loved his enemies, even prayed for them, praying, Father, forgive them. And those were actions which decisively changed the course of history. So 
So here's how uh, we get across the minefield on the beach I began with and the minefield of our lives in this coming week. The key thing, the essential thing, of course, is that Jesus goes first. Jesus goes first, willingly. He goes out into that minefield on our behalf to clear a path for us. And we shudder to think what he faced there for us. But then, having done that, he calls us to follow him. These are his words from later in the gospel from Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, as we step out into the minefield, we cannot see Jesus physically, but we have his yes his solemn promise, I am with you to the end of the age. His presence by his spirit. And so we step out into the coming week trusting him. Trusting that the way is clear and safe because of what he has done. What he did changed the course of history forever. But the amazing thing is that he walks with us in the coming week. He is continuing to change history. And if we are willing, we can be involved in that. In a thousand apparently tiny ways this coming week, we can be involved in that. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father... We want to pray first as those who are economical with the truth, slow in commitment, quick to rise to our own defense and defend our honor, slow in love, especially to those who hate us. Father, We acknowledge these things. We pray that you would convict us deeply of of them and pray that you might help us to come back to the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, to re-find our identity in him. But as we re-find our identity in him, our Heavenly Father, we pray that we would rediscover and discover afresh our purpose in this world and that in all these areas we would then change and serve to be different, not for our own praise or honor, but for your praise and honor. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.